0: Well, Katie and I have three precious daughters at home. And one of my favorite days as a dad is the day when I get to teach one of them how to ride a bike. Anticipation fills the air that day as I'm taking the training wheels off of the bike. The other sisters are running through the neighborhood announcing to all their friends, our sister's learning how to ride a bike today. Our sister's learning how to ride a bike today. We get to the spot where I have the bike securely held in my hands. My daughter jumps on the bike And then the two of us take off running. We get going as we go. Mom and the other sisters are there cheering, you can do it, you can do it. Then about the fourth or the fifth time up and down the block, I'm starting to apply that encouragement to myself (laughs) as a dad. I'm saying, you can do it, you can do it. The next time you run a 5K, I challenge you to do it completely hunched over, holding a bike seat a (laughs) foot and a half off the ground. Then I'll be impressed. So we get to that place where my daughter is riding her bike and the handlebars start to wobble. She immediately looks over at her dad and she sees me right there. She has that reassurance that I still have that bike firmly in hand. She eventually gets to the place where she's willing to venture out on her own. And she does. I let go. She takes off and she is sailing far faster than she's expecting she starts to go sideways and then all of a sudden she falls on the ground. What happens at that point is in their tears, they look back and then what do they see from their father? They see me running as their dad to grab them into my arms, to hold them so tightly and tell them, I love you. It's going to be okay. Daddy is here for you. When you and I are faced with that situation in life when the bike goes down, God is there for you. And today, in Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us the affirmation that when life is hard, when it's difficult, God is there, and he loves us. So I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 8. You'll find it on page 917 of one of the Bibles that we provide. And we're going to begin with verse 31 and work our way through the rest of the chapter all the way to verse 39. So here, Romans 8, verse 31, Paul writes this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is a special passage. Paul gets to the place in chapter 8 where he is culminating all that he has said for seven chapters. And he comes in, verse, in chapter 8 and brings four bold assurances that we have. And these are going to frame the passage today. The first one is in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? The second one is in... Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Then the third one is in verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? And finally, in verse 35, Paul wraps it all up by saying, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? All four of these are written as rhetorical questions, emphatically demanding that the answer be no one. It's implicit right within the question, that there is no one that can separate us from God's love. If you and I are honest, we look at this first one, and we see it and it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Those are two great truths. But as you and I look at life, there are times where we we tend to doubt and wrestle with that. I mean, it's it's wonderful, it's a fantastic truth, but life experiences tend to be different. I mean we're on that bike and the handlebars start to wobble and we go down and we go down hard. I mean you're trying to regain your orientation with a cracked helmet and a skinned up elbow and now you have gravel inside your knee and you're at that point looking back in a flood of tears wanting to see God the Father but in your blindness you don't even see God. You've been wanting to be married for for years. And God has never given you that spouse. You're in that long season of unemployment and it's no longer encouraging for people to say, but hey, at least you made it into the second candidate. You've been walking through infertility for a long time and God has still not granted you a child. Is God actually for you in that moment? And as you start to think through Whether or not God is for you in those difficult seasons of life, you have an enemy that is ready to pounce like a lion in that moment. And what the enemy wants to do is actually convince you that God is not for you and that maybe he is actually against you. The enemy that we have is is that great enemy, Satan. And if you look at it in the original, when it says Satan, it's not actually a name. It's a title. We've given it the name But in the original Hebrew, it's written the Satan, and it actually means the adversary. You and I have an adversary that's against us. And in his brilliance, here's what he tries to do. He tries to convince you that you are in an adversarial relationship with God the Father. And so as you're sitting here in tears, looking back, longing to see this God the Father that is coming to you, you start to have seeds of doubt sown in your mind by the adversary saying, God actually may not be for you you start to wonder, okay, is God going to be angry and frustrated with me? I mean, I went down again. And you actually have this perspective that God is going to be frustrated with you. He's going to say, come on. Haven't you figured this out by now? I've given you this bike. I've done all of this for you, trying to teach you how to ride a bike and you fell yet again. You should have this figured out by now. What are you, almost four years old? For crying out loud. Oh, wait, that's what you're doing. You're crying out loud yet again we have this perspective that God's actually not for us, that he's going he's to be frustrated with us, that he's going to be angry with us every time we go down. And it doesn't just stop there. We're on the ground, we're looking back, and we see God the Father running toward us, but Satan's whispering into our ear, you know what, if he really loved you, he never would have let go of that bike. If God was really for you, he would have kept you from falling in the first place. Instead, in that frustration that he's trying to bring into our hearts and that disillusionment, Paul goes the other direction. Paul says in verse 32, this is how you know that God loves you even in those moments. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What Paul is saying is that God is there for you because he gave you his son. And that is the confirmation just how much God loves you and that he is for you. Not only that, not only did he give us that great gift of his son, but the passage goes on to say that every day going forward now, he wants to graciously give us everything else as confirmation of that great and mighty gift that he gave us in Jesus Christ. So when you experience the smaller gifts of grace throughout your life, that is the Lord confirming to you that he gave you his son. Graciously give is a wonderful translation. It takes that Greek word charis, which we know as the word grace, and it takes the verbal form and turns it into graciously give you all things. That's what God's doing every day. He's gracing you with his love. So as you were driving in this morning and you saw the sunrise... That was God graciously telling you how much he loves you. As you experience that kind word from a friend, or maybe that laughter from a grandchild, or when you experience that unsolicited letter that comes in the mail that's a kind word from a friend, or when actually everything happens the way it's supposed to, you get all the kids to all the places that they're supposed to be on that day, those are gracious gifts from the Lord. And in each one of those, the Lord is saying, I love you. I gave you my son. When you see the sunrise, that's Jesus saying right into your heart, I love you. I gave you my son. That kind word from a friend, that's the Lord speaking into your heart, saying I'm graciously giving you this because I love you. And I gave you my son. That laughter from a child, that wonderful (coughs) note, or even a day that just happens to work out the way it's supposed to. That's God confirming for you that I love you because ultimately I've given you my son. But we have an enemy that wants to work against that grace in our lives. He's not only our adversary, but he actually attacks the second assertion that Paul is trying to make for us today. So our first one was found in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? The second one is found in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. The reality is, you and I do face accusations and charges every day. I mean, it, it's a struggle. Jesus did. He faced them all the time. David did. I mean, look what he wrote in Psalm 109. He says, I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. I mean, that's, that's accusations that come. The reason they come it's because another translation for the phrase, the Satan, is not just the adversary, but another great translation is the accuser. And that's what Satan does. He works to be our accuser. And he takes us to a place where he accuses us for things that we have done wrong and get us to the point where we actually start to internalize and believe that his accusations are right and they must stand. Let me, let me ex- illustrate how this works in the life of us as believers with our evil one. So you come over here, and you find yourself in kind of that Garden of Eden scene, and you come across that sin that so easily entangles. And you're looking at it, and here at this point, Satan's not yet coming at you as the accuser. He's far more deceptive than that. He begins by making you think he's your greatest fan. So he's telling you how great you are. He's telling you how fantastic things have been going for you, that you certainly deserve this. You have worked so hard. Just cutting a few corners here is actually going to work out better for you, that it's going to solve all your problems, and that you should take and eat that which was not given for you because he is your greatest champion trying to convince you that you are actually the center of the universe. And he's pretty good at it because he has a partner in crime, you and I, who start to think maybe I am the center of the universe. And we're looking at this, seeing how good it could make our life moving forward. And we give in, and we take that which was forbidden. Instantaneously, the evil one goes from being your biggest fan Mm -hmm. to your biggest accuser. You feel it in your heart, but this is what happens. You are transported from this garden scene into the courtroom scene. All of a sudden you are faced with the fact that you are sitting here on trial in the witness stand. God the Father is the judge of the universe and Satan now is the prosecuting attorney laying his case and accusation against us moments after he was just trying to convince you he was your greatest fan. And what he does is he brings his accusations against you before the God of the throne. This is actually described for us in Revelation chapter 12. Look what it says about him. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Before he is hurled down, this is his full-time job accusing us. So much so, he's even willing to take the night shift to do this. And he's accusing you over and over again for the things that you have done. And so you hear him say, Your Honor, I would like like to take up the case against one of your followers who once again has proven his inability to follow you wholeheartedly. He has taken of that sin and broken one of your commands yet again. Certainly at this point, your honor, he has fallen from your graces. He should not be given your salvation, not your love, and certainly should never be used in service to your kingdom again. And in shock, you're hearing the accuser just lambast you with what you have just done. in reality, you and I get the opportunity to eavesdrop on this court scene every time it happens because Satan loves to whisper it into your ear. When you are down, he loves to remind you that you have fallen and that you have failed. And as these accusations come, whether it's out of the blue, having this discouragement that waves over you and you're reminded of a sin that happened years ago in the past that you have been forgiven for, but he just never lets you forget it, those are his accusations against you to the God of the universe. And as you're holding this apple, you start to realize that these accusations are actually valid. I have no case against myself. I have sinned. I have done these things. You know, he's so good that he even does this when we haven't sinned. Just ask Job how that went for him. And these accusations come and it constantly makes us feel like we have failed and that we are without the graces and love of God. And so we're hearing these poured out over us. Even when we try to set them down, fold our hands in our laps, we're still thinking of the fact that we have been accused, that we have fallen far from God because of our sin. And what we are waiting with our eyes closed is an expectation that the God of the universe is going to strike that gavel in judgment against us. But as we wait there, the gavel never sounds. It remains silent. And the reason it remains silent is in verse 34. And this is our third great assurance. In verse 34, Paul says, Who then is the one who condemns? And the answer is no one. God the Father is not in this moment... Striking a gavel of condemnation against you. It has already been done. And instead, the truth of verse 1 from this chapter resonates for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we have just heard the evil one bring his accusations against us and we have actually started to believe them. So we struggle with the silence of the gavel, expecting expecting it to actually strike at any time. And what you and I have a tendency to do is actually take over the accusations, set ourselves back down in the witness stand, and start to bring it back up. Your Honor, I would like to continue the case of Satan versus the sinner. And then what you and I do is we bring our own accusations against ourselves, and we do it sometimes so well that Satan just gets to sit back and watch us do his job for him. You're looking in your life and you're saying, I'm the one who walked out on that marriage. I'm the reason for that divorce. Certainly there's no way God would ever want to use me for service unto him again. You're looking at that friendship that actually dissolved because you were the one that fell into slander and gossip and your words hurt that person. And as a result of that relationship that has gone south because of yourself, you're, you're, you're no longer willing to get into any deep relationships going forward. You've heaped so much debt upon yourself that you're sitting there chalking yourself up as a financial failure without any hope. And all the while, what we're doing is we're punishing ourselves taking the condemnation upon us. We do this so well that we leave the courtroom scene and we walk our way over to the cross. We come to the cross and we should be coming here for forgiveness and to receive mercy and when we bow and knee to the cross instead of coming to receive that forgiveness we're just exposing our back to the inner lashings that we want to bring against it with the constant negativity the low self-esteem and a memory that will never let go of a sin from our past. And then When we're done flogging ourselves, then we stand up and we put a hand on the crossbeam, another one over here, and we just hang here saying, I deserve nothing other than condemnation for my sin. And as you sit there waiting in expectation for the hammer to strike, the hammer is silent because there is no hammer, there are no nails, there is no gavel because it has already been struck. The hammer threw its blow into the nails at the death of Christ. So as you are bravely opening up your eyes, expecting to see a hammer bearing down on you, what does verse 34 say you see instead? It says you see Jesus who died, more than that, raised to life, Seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. What you see is Jesus Christ and God the Father standing there looking at you with eyes with no condemnation. Don't get confused about this intercession either. You're not looking at a Jesus Christ who is holding the, uh, God at bay, trying to convince him with all his words that, hey, don't, don't bear down in wrath upon my, upon my follower. Uh, and he's trying to hold back an angry God who just wants to bring everything against you and that God is over here saying, let me at him, let me at him. And Jesus is holding him at bay with all his words. The intercession is Christ's presence. The very fact that he is there shows that he is interceding for you. Because when Christ Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, he was transported to the right hand of God the Father. And seated at the right hand means it is finished. So the very fact that Jesus is there is the intercession for you. And so what do you see instead? You see a loving Father and a Jesus Christ who gave himself for you standing there in love. When Jesus was going through his ministry, there was a time when the religious rulers brought a woman to him and they were bent on destroying her. They brought her to him because she had committed adultery and each one of them had a heavy stone in their hand that they were ready to heave as hard as they could into her. And so in fear, she just tightly closes her eyes waiting for the strike of that first rock to land. She's actually praying, please let the blows work fast so the pain of death will relieve me of this difficulty. And as she is sitting there with her eyes closed, she hears nothing but a prolonged silence until the first thing that she hears is a gentle thud of a rock falling at the feet of her accusers. When the last of the footsteps of these accusers have all walked away, She opens her eyes and what does she see? The only one left is Jesus. And Jesus lovingly asks her, Is there no one left to condemn you? And her response is, No one, sir. And then Jesus says this Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I. How is it that Jesus is willing to say those words? because of the last and final assurance that we have. In verse 35, it says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The truth is nothing. You cannot be separated from this love because of what Christ has already done for you. But the list is extensive of potential candidates that could potentially separate us from God's love. I mean, Paul lists them out here. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? I mean, this is a pretty extensive list. And Paul lays it out there. And he says, These things could potentially take you from Christ's love in our own thinking. But he says they don't. And I love how he starts after I read a list of uh, experiences and circumstances I thought he would have said what can separate you from God's love. But instead he begins with who can separate you from God's love. You now the reason for that is because most of our hardships are caused by people. There's a face behind the pain that we experience. When he says shall trouble I mean, for you, that trouble is that child who should be taking care of you in in your old age, but they don't. They've walked away from you as a family, and they've even walked away from the faith, leaving you with heartache. Your hardship? Well, that's that spouse who walked out on your marriage, leaving you with three kids to raise on your own. Persecution? Well, that's that spouse who didn't leave the marriage, but because of your faith is insulting you and leaving you isolated within the marriage. Famine? Well, this is the CEO of your company who decided to embezzle money and as a result ran the company into bankruptcy and now you're without a job, unable to provide for your own family. Nakedness? That's that person who violated you, leaving you you with a sense that your innocence has been stolen. Danger? Well, these are the people that robbed you. Now that they've stolen your possessions, you feel completely vulnerable. Sword? Sword? this is that friend who betrayed you. Paul lays out that list. And it's not just an arbitrary list. He's not thinking, okay, what, what could people possibly face? Let me try to get as many of them in here. This might happen to some people on occasion. No, this is Paul's biography. He is listing things that actually happened to him, people who actually hurt him. I mean, look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I've worked much harder and as a result, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, Been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, and and here he talks about a bunch of the who's. I've been in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and I've been naked. Paul understood these hardships. These were deep. And these are wounds that that hurt. As a result, Paul is looking through this saying, this isn't something that's just going to happen maybe occasionally to us. In verse 36, he says this, For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is going to come. And it comes a lot. But Paul says these are not powerful enough to break God's bond of love. And he goes on to say instead in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Conquerors is a great word. In order to conquer something, you actually have to go through it and overcome it rather than dodge it and avoid it. And what Paul is saying is you're going to go through these, but in every one of them, they're not going to have the strength to separate you from God's love. Instead, they're going to confirm God's love all the more. And he takes the list and he decides to expand it out. He says in verse 38, for I am convinced, now that's a strong word. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation, as if to say, if you think I'm forgetting one, insert it here. Neither anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an exhaustive list. You know who else fits in the anything else in all creation category? You do. And I do. There is nothing that we can do that will separate us from the love that is in God. When my daughters are on the ground after having fallen off their bike and they're flooded with tears, they experience my love in a unique way. Now, they could experience my love uh, by their success of going off and and completing the bike ride. And that is an exciting time. The wind is blowing through their hair. Everybody is cheering that they made it. And I, as a dad, am displaying my great love to them with excitement for what they have just done. But there's a unique bond that happens in tears. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And rather than their tears and hardship separating them, from my love, it strengthens it all the more. Do I want my girls to suffer? Not at all. But when they do, they see a dad who loves them and is for them. As you're riding this bike called life, the handlebars are gonna wobble. You're gonna go down, and you're gonna go down hard. But in that moment, what are you going to see? you're going to see a God of love who rather than that fall has separated you from him, it's actually made that bond all the stronger because nothing can separate you from that love of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift. You have blessed us with your Son And as a result, we know that you love us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in light of that. We pray that you would encourage our hearts to cling to the hope that nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, we thank you that even when we lose our balance or when other bikes collide into ours, we know that you love us deeply and that you are for us. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.